For Cybercrime Radio, I'm David Browie. Joining me today is Jack Riesauter, creator of Darknet Diaries. Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, Jack, for listeners who may not be familiar with your work, tell us a bit about yourself and the podcast you've been producing. You've got more than 130 episodes of so far. Yeah, I make the podcast Darknet Diaries, and I like to think of it as like true crime meets cybercrime. And I'm kind of a slow news junkie. So like when breaking cyber news comes out, I don't like reading it because we all have more questions than we have answers. It's like, oh, this thing got breached. Okay, well, by who? I don't know. What got stolen? We don't know. And what's the ramification? We don't know anything. Why are you asking all these questions? I'm like, well, why are you telling me anything? So I like to wait until the story is like three, four, five, six years old. And then let's go back. Now we have all the answers. We found the person who did it. We found all the implications that happened. You know, what was the software that was at fault? Did that company go out of business? What happened to them? All these different things that just spin out of a story that takes years to uncover, right? And so that's where I'm at. That's what I'm focused on. Let's get that whole soup to nuts story and put that into a podcast form. And that's what I work on. Before that, I was a security engineer, mostly doing firewalls and intrusion detection systems, looking at logs, looking for intruders, securing the perimeter, that sort of thing. And yeah, technology has just been a passion of mine all my life. So you were walking the walk a long time before you were talking the talk, really. Yeah, yeah. And it was always fascinating to go to places like DEF CON or whatever and just hear these crazy stories. And I'm just like, how come this isn't more widely known? I said, I wish the world knew about this sort of thing, right? There's a lot of different things that influenced me starting the show, but I'm like, this doesn't need to be just for techie people and so dry and hard to parse, but I think the world could appreciate some of these stories. Well, they definitely do. And some of them are absolutely fascinating to hear about. Getting involved with the darknet is a place that people hear about on the news. It's this mysterious corner of the internet. No one would ever know how to get in there if you ask them. It feels like kind of the other side of the tracks of the internet, doesn't it? Maybe for listeners' sake, you could explain just very briefly, what is the darknet? And then how does one actually get in there? Well, I call my show Darknet Diaries, not so much because I'm just talking about the darknet, but I just like this word, darknet. I think it's cool. There was something in our network when I was working for a company called Dark Fiber. And I was like, wow, what is Dark Fiber? And we have this connected between two offices, this Dark Fiber link. What's going on there? It just sounded really neat to me to hear about this Dark Fiber. And it just basically meant it's fiber that we don't use, but it's there kind of as a backup. And so I kind of just took this idea of like, what's the dark parts of the internet, the things that are hidden, the things that you don't know about. And that's kind of where my focus is. It's that mysterious stuff. And so it doesn't have to necessarily be any one place. Like it's not just the dark net, but you're asking about the dark net. There is a protocol called Tor, the onion router is what it stands for, which you can connect into that. It's like a whole separate internet. You can think of it as it's like a little spot in the corner there. But when you enter, you become kind of anonymous and nobody really knows who you are because everyone's IPs get scrambled and you just kind of get mixed up in the shuffle of everyone else. And so you can't really be tracked. And even websites that are on tour, because you can visit places out there and on the dark net, they can't be tracked either. They're hidden as well. So you can't say, oh, well, who owns this website and how do I take them down? And where's the hosting? All that's hidden. You can't figure it out. Good luck. Because it's kind of just spread around. It's hosted by a lot of different places at once. It's not in one place. It's a fascinating place. This is a place where hidden things are going on. And what hidden things might you want to do out there? Well, you might have dissidents that want to express themselves, but their government might think that what they're expressing is illegal. So they're like, yeah, I can't talk about this thing in the public. I got to do it in a way that's anonymous, right? And so there's things going on in that space, but there's also crime that's happening out there. It's a fascinating place to be in. I don't spend too much time over there. I do a few stories about what's going on over there, but not always. 
Sure. But it definitely, as you said, it symbolizes kind of the hidden, the stuff that people don't hear about. I was interested when you're even talking about sort of the follow-up to data breaches. I mean, there's so many these days that you're 100% right. It's very front-loaded. You hear about this breach, this massive thing that happens. Everybody's compromised. Information is breached. Massive financial losses. Systems out. You know, the world's coming to an end. And then a week later, everyone's forgotten about it because there's a new breach. And you never hear the follow-up and the repercussions of that. Does that damage our perception of how important cyber security is if it kind of falls off the radar so quickly? I think so. And I think it's because we kind of become lackadaisical in the way that we just think that, oh yeah, our data is in a breach. That's normal. That's what's happening. That's what I normally expect to see in this week's news. And if that's the case, if you're feeling like that, then you're going to feel like, well, that's just how it's always going to be, right? That's the next step of that whole logic. And I can't stand that. This is not how it's always going to be. This shouldn't be how it's always going to be. We can't continue doing this. <laughs> We've got to do something different and we got to keep our data out of breaches. And I don't like trusting a company with my information and then that company totally losing my information or whatever. And so I'm trying to be a very big digital privacy advocate in a lot of ways. So I do have a lot of lessons about that in my stories. You were mentioning about the dark net. I mean, ultimately, this is a place where people can't be tracked, where they can get online without being bothered. They can be anonymous. This probably sounds very appealing for a lot of people that think the internet works like that. Tracking is everywhere these days. So it's interesting the difference between the perception that a lot of people have and probably a lot of the realities that they're hearing about on your show. How do you find subjects, people to interview? So you've certainly got a pretty eclectic mix of interviewees and topics that you're talking about and things. How do you go about that process? Yeah, it's tricky because I want those dark parts of the internet to be exposed. I want to shine that light on there. And so when I'm sticking my microphone down in those areas, people don't want to talk because they're like, it's dark on purpose. We don't put the light on here. What are you doing? <laughs> right. So by design, it's very difficult to get the people on my show to talk. And I think that's how I like it. That's how it's supposed to be is get those hard to find guests and bring them on. And then that creates a whole feeling of itself. Like what? How in the world did you get an NSA agent on the show to talk about the time NSA hacked someone? This is insane. How is this happening? Like it becomes just like a whole experience in itself to hear some of these guests. I mean, there's a lot of different ways I get guests. I do a lot of shoulder tapping where I'm just like, hey, I know what you've been working on. You probably don't want to talk about it, but I would love to hear your story. Or, you know, you see people getting in trouble because they've hacked into something or stepping into the light like, hey, I'm the one who did this hack. And it's like, hey, I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> I've got my finger on the pulse of what's going on in the world of cybersecurity to notice all the big moves and the things that are happening and get right in there. But another thing is I have like Google alerts that's set for like hacker sentenced. And if hacker is sentenced, if that shows up in any news article, well, now that's the whole story, right? We know, say, if hacker got sentenced, then hacker got arrested. And if hacker got arrested, then they're found guilty. And if they're found guilty, well, what they do? And if they did something, then what's that story? And all this kind of stuff, right? So maybe there's court transcripts as well that we can look up and see what's going on there. So that's really nice to kind of package it all together. So it's a process. You made a point on your site about following journalistic standards, which is interesting because that's not always the case. A lot of people, it can become very sensationalized, it can become very specific and targeted in perhaps the wrong way. What was the reason for doing that, I suppose? When you went into it, you said, I'm going to do this in a journalistic way, as you're saying, to dig in, get the facts, the original sources. Yeah, I think that's very important. I think it just as a personal value, I feel like in the last decade or so, truth has become such a blurry thing. And I feel like all the other big issues of the world, everything else comes after figuring out the truth, right? If we can all agree that this is the true stuff that's happening, then we can solve all the other issues. But because truth is so muddy and so blurry, 
then we're not going to ever be all together to solve any of these other things. So to me, that's like the ultimate thing to solve for humanity is to get us all to believe what the truth is and not have people just explaining things, trying to get us to believe their truth for their own agenda or whatever. And it's tricky because even when we're like teens, at some point we wake up and we look around, we're like, man, everyone's been lying to us. Our parents want us to do this thing. So they've been lying us to get this done. Our teachers want us to do this. So they've been lying us to get this. The police want us to do this. So they've been lying to us to get this done. Like religion, throw that in and all, like all these things. And you're just like, man, everyone's lying to me. I got to figure out my own truth here. And it's really tricky just to navigate it in a world that isn't even that corrupt. It's just everyone has their own things that they want from you. And so, yeah, to me, I'm just like, I'm pretty much anti-conspiracy theory person at this point. Like, if there's any, like, hint of conspiracy theory, I'm just, like, allergic to it. I'm just like, no, I don't want anything to do with this. I want to find the truth to things and not just making up stuff because that's how you feel. Like, there's no basis for this. And I also want, like, a legacy here of... While this guy comes in and we can trust that what he's saying is truthful because he's backing it up with court transcripts or calling up people's friends and family to verify these stories or doing his due diligence in whatever fashion he can to get this as accurate as he can. And that builds up a trust. And then that builds up a legacy of people, you know, believing in it and following it. And you don't want to just kind of be rough around the edges. You want it to be very clean so that it stands the test of time. And that's what I'm here for as a long run. You want it to be unimpeachable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's definitely an approach that listeners will appreciate. Do you ever get people that have been on the show coming back saying, God, I wish I hadn't done that? <laughs> One time. It's kind of strange too, because when I was first doing it, I was like, oh man, I got to ask this guy about the worst day of his life. And then we like go through all the details of it to get all the information. Why am I doing this? Why did I sign up for this? This is awful. But then at the, you know, the same interview, I talked to the person, we go through it all. And they're like, this was amazing. Like, Nobody ever asked me how I felt about all this or got into the details so much before. Nobody cared to listen to my story in this detail before. I just felt like a therapy session. Like a lot came out. I'm like, oh, good. I'm glad that you enjoyed it because I felt really weird about it. And so, yeah, that's kind of where it is now. It's like, let's give the guest a real fair shake about why they did this and not try to villainize them. Even if they've done something that is just completely awful, which I've had some guests that are just absolutely awful. You know, I could call them out on there. Like, don't you see that you're an asshole in this way? Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I was. Well, what was giving you that ability to think that this was okay? You know, and we can get into those like emotional parts of being human and recognizing that you weren't being yourself at that point and you've changed since then and all this kind of stuff. So I think the guests appreciate how I really try to get to their motive and not just be like, you were stupid for doing this, but like, no, I get it. You were bullied in high school and your family life sucked and all, like, all these things came together to be like, well, here's my shot. I'm taking it. And it's a weird experience to be in. But I think understanding that motive entirely really helps the listener understand why this stuff happens. And yeah, the guest appreciates the fair expression of their life. It's so important. And as you said, a lot of times you're looking back at something that happened a few years earlier. They've been arrested. They've served time possibly or whatever. You know, there's been some consequences. And so a lot of times they will have had an opportunity to sort of reflect on that stuff. And again, this is the thing that isn't normally covered in the media because when the breach happens, it's all about the breach and the victims. But the perpetrator has a different story that you're bringing out. So I can see how that would be very valuable. Mm -hmm. So your most played episodes are pushing about a million downloads each. There's a lot of people out there tuning in, which I'm sure is very gratifying for the effort that you're putting into this. What kind of feedback do you get from the listeners? And how does this shape the sort of topics that you focus on? I mean, I feel like I make the show for myself. And this is something I wish I heard. And if I did hear it, I wouldn't have made it, right? Well, that's fine. 
satisfied. I got the show I want, but I couldn't find it. So I ended up making it myself so that I could hear it. So I get into the stories that I find to be the most interesting and the most satisfying. When you do something this artistic, like I'm adding a lot of music in there and putting artwork and stuff in each episode, thumbnail and stuff. When you're doing something that's artistic and people are appreciating it, they're liking it, it really gives you the fuel. Like it's a clean burning fuel that can help you fly to the moon, right? It's just such a motivational thing. But I try to hold on to that of you liked what I was making and I'm going to keep making what I like making, right? And not really listen to like what they want me to make or how to change it for their sake. If somebody likes it, great. If they don't, maybe the show's not for them. And I'm not trying to make everyone happy by listening to it. I'm just making what I think I would like to listen to. And that just falls in line. But yeah, I think some of the feedback I get are, you know, I was a carpenter or a dentist or something. And after listening to this, I just realized how much of a passion I have for technology and specifically hacking and cybersecurity. And I've totally changed careers to get my certification. And now I just got my first job as a technician in the Network Security Operations Center or something like that. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe you got inspired to that level. I hear teachers using the show as homework, and then you quizzed on certain elements of it. I've actually heard the people in NSA sometimes require you to listen to certain episodes for training on what they're up to because I cover some of their stories. And yeah, it's just like, here's a little history of the NSA. You should be familiar as talked about by Jack. And you know, a lot of times I'll publish an episode and somebody will reach out like the leading prosecutor for that case and be like, hey, I was the one who prosecuted that guy. I could not get him to talk at all. And he just spilled everything to you on your show. I don't, I don't understand. That's fantastic. Just even to have people that like it so much that they actually want to change into cybersecurity careers. I mean, the industry is trying so hard to get people to join. And then in the end, what really inspired people was hearing about other stuff that's going on and thinking, wow, this is something that really resonates with me. Yeah. And I think there was inspirational thing I heard to help me with that. It was Leslie Carhart and Johnny Xmas was giving a talk somewhere. And they said something along the lines of like, you want to stand out in InfoSec. You want to be a rock star in InfoSec. Don't try to be a keynote speaker at some InfoSec conference. Instead, go talk at like Comic-Con or DragonCon or something else that is also cool, that's geeky, and then tell them how you're a hacker and these are the things you've hacked and this is what the hacking culture is like and people will go crazy over you and you're going to inspire all these people in the audience to just get more into it. And I'm like, yeah, I like that. So I've always been kind of like one foot on both sides of the fence. I want the cybersecurity professionals to appreciate this and the non-professionals to appreciate it because we're all tied into this technology world that we are in today. Everyone is curious of what hacks going on and what does all this mean to the world and walk me through it without it being a dry and boring kind of way, but an exciting storytelling kind of way that's talking to people like they're adults and not dumbing it down to kid level or, or going over their head and being super dry and in the weeds. So I try to balance both of them. It's so important to do that and so very hard, as anybody who works in a tech sector would know, to do that because there's so much tech. I mean, to be able to translate that into something people can relate to is not always easy. Listening to some of your episodes, I noted that there's a big focus on atmosphere, lots of sound effects, and you stylized the graphics for each episode. It felt like you're really trying to create a mood. It's almost like you're sitting around a campfire and storytelling in that way. Was that intentional or is this just how you work? The thing that I had in mind was that as I'm telling this story, I'm just telling it to a friend at the bar. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're here tonight. I have such a crazy story to tell you. Do you have a minute? <laughs> you know. And then I'm like getting into it and I'm all excited and it's very relaxed way of explaining it to them because we're a longtime friend of mine. And you treat the listener like they're an old friend and it's really fun. 
it's like when the guest comes in, it's almost like I'm grabbing them from like the next bar stool over and be like, oh, tell them what happened in this part here. And oh, yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> like, and that's kind of how I picture it. So it is very much like you said, a campfire kind of vibe. I mean, I have a big branding involvement in there, right? With the graphics and the audio and stuff. And I do really want it to be eye-catching and gets you into the mood and just brings you into this world of, wow, what is this show? And I want to hear more about it. So it's mostly for marketing, but it also just gets you this atmosphere to it. And I like that. There's something fun to just play with that world that I've created. It's just, it's so much fun. Fantastic. Well, Jack, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. It's so interesting what you're doing and so important, I think, in really engaging people in the cybersecurity world in, in a way that they probably didn't even realize they wanted to be engaged and getting out there and really telling stories and exposing, as you said, some of the hidden corners of the internet that we all use in different ways every single day. So yeah, it's a fantastic product and really thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me, David. I appreciate being here. I'm David Browie for Cybercrime Radio. To check out more of our episodes, visit cybersecurityventures.com.